before I get into our text for tonight, I want to do a little bit of infomercial time. Um, It's fall, so a lot of things are kicking off, and we want to make sure that whether you've been a part of Grace Community Church for a long time, or a short time, or maybe this is your first time, that you um, know what we're all about as a church. Last fall, uh, we started something called Momentum, which is uh, a two-year stewardship initiative where we are intentionally addressing what does it look like to be a good steward of what God has given us. Um, And if you haven't heard this yet, every fall we've decided that the elders are going to pray through and talk to leaders, talk to the congregation, and determine what is best for us as a church to do in the fall to make sure that we are intentionally becoming and making disciples. And as uh, the elders spent time doing that over the last couple of years, last fall we saw fit to talk about stewardship, how we use our time, talent, and treasure for the glory of God and for God's kingdom purposes. So um, that's what we did last year um, in the fall, and it's really a two-year initiative where we're addressing that. But this fall, we're going to focus in on a short sermon series this fall, and um, we are calling it Regaining Momentum. And what we are going to focus on is the story of God. We are going to go through the, the narrative of Scripture over eight weeks and take a look at God's story, and then we're going to take a look at how to share our story in light of God's story. So we can understand God's word, but also share God's word and the good news with others. So if you are a part of Grace Community Church, we want to invite you to this event. It's on a Monday night. It's just in seven to eight days, August 26th, Monday night, 6.30 to 8 o'clock. It's at our North Liberty campus. We're one church in two locations. It'll be up in North Liberty. And it'll be a time for us to hear what we have in store for the fall, what God has been doing over the last year, and just a great time of worship as well. So we want to invite you to that if you call Grace Community Church your church home. There's another event that I want to tell you about that is to help you get caught up if you are new to Grace Community Church and you missed everything last fall, but you're really interested in what we talked about, particularly in regards to stewardship, we want to invite you to a lunch. That lunch is going to be coming up on this Sunday afternoon. It's at 10 Roost in North Liberty, and it's a chance to hear what our church has been doing and going through over the last year. And lastly, we just want to communicate to everyone uh, that during this time uh, in the fall of regaining momentum, we're going to be taking a look at the commitments that we made a year ago and saying, God, am I on the right track? Am I doing what um, you have asked me to commit to? So just wanted to give you all a heads up that as we jump into the fall here, we want to be intentional as a church about where we are and where we're going, both as individuals and collectively as a church. Would you pray with me and for me? And we'll jump into our text here tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to worship you. God, thank you for the time of worship we have already had. God, we can feel your spirit moving in this place. And God, we're so thankful. We are not worthy, just as Steve was saying, we are not worthy to have your spirit come and dwell among us. But your spirit is here Your spirit is moving. God, we just want to experience an outpouring of your spirit on our lives. God, we want to continue to worship you as we open up your word. God, we want to look at your word and see wonderful things. We want to hear wonderful things from the mouth of God. We want to feel your spirit doing work in us. God, as we leave here tonight, we pray that we would be changed. That we would be different people than when we walked in here tonight. 
Thank you, God, that you are at work among us. Thank you, God, that you have a plan for us. Thank you, God, that we have an inheritance in your kingdom. God, we want to see what you would have for us tonight and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 9, we'll go through a a verse or two at a time here, talk about kind of what's going on to make sure we're all on the same page with this parable, and then we'll talk about some implications of the text. So starting in verse 9 of Luke chapter 20. And he, meaning Jesus, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. So a couple things here. Um, It's very important um, when we read these parables and really when we read anything in scripture to know the context that Jesus is telling this parable. So as we look at the context, we need to scoot back even to Luke 19 to see uh, what's happening here. So if we look back at Luke chapter 19 and we look at verse 28, if you have a, a heading there, it says the triumphal entry. Maybe you know the story. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem and he has the triumphal entry. And maybe if you grow up in church, you, uh, on Palm Sunday, the kids line the aisle with palms and, and somebody maybe even walks down the aisle or something like that. And we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry. But often we don't follow the context and see what takes place next. Look what happens after the triumphal entry. Entry In Luke 19, verse 41, we read that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He rides into Jerusalem, and he does not like everything that he sees. Right after this, Jesus cleanses the temple of the money changers and the tax collectors that are using the temple for their own means. And then at the beginning of chapter 20, we see the authority of Jesus is challenged by the Jewish leaders. It's in that context that he tells this parable. Then as we look at the actual contents of this parable, in this day that Jesus lived and is telling this story, this was a very common occurrence. You would have a a man who planted a vineyard, and then he would put tenants in charge of that vineyard because Uh, Someone with those kind of means had other vineyards to take care of, other businesses to take care of, and so they would leave, and it says that he was gone, and he went into another country for a long while. If you are a vineyard owner, and you're going to be gone for a long while, you need to put someone in charge of your vineyard that you trust. So this vineyard owner puts tenants over these vineyards as he's going to be away. Verse 10, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. I don't know if you ever have any regrets about jobs you've had. Has anyone, especially when they were younger, when you look back at your on-the-job behavior, you're not necessarily proud of your behavior? Have you ever kind of like wasted the boss's time or money or resources now looking back? See a few nod, nodding heads. I fortunately didn't do anything crazy awful that I feel bad about, but just little things at different jobs I had. Just taking advantage of the time I had there. I worked at a couple of different coffee shops, and if the manager was away, I'd be doing a crossword puzzle or reading my own book, and then come in and be like, clean something, clean something. So 
like we all have these regrets that we have about jobs we've had and how we haven't necessarily been a good steward of that job opportunity. These tenants are overlooking a vineyard. The owner sends a servant, and if you plant a vineyard, you're not doing it for fun. You're planting a vineyard because you hope to harvest a crop. So this owner of the vineyard sends the servant to get the harvest, get the crop, and bring it back so it can be used for something good. And that servant, what does it say that the tenants of the field do? They beat him and send him away empty-handed. This is not ideal on-the-job behavior. I think we can all agree. So, in verse 11, he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and they sent him away empty-handed. The language is almost the same here, but we see the addition of they shamefully treated him. In some way, they dealt with this servant in a shameful way. He wasn't just sent away empty-handed. He was treated shamefully. There's an escalation here in the way that this servant is treated. Verse 12, And he sent yet a third, and this one they also wounded and cast out. It may not be apparent to us right away in the language, uh, but the commentators say that when it says that he was cast out, it could mean that they took this servant and they pulled him into like the building that was at the vineyard and they beat him and then threw him out of the vineyard. So they worked this guy over even more. So there's an escalation in how these servants are being treated by the tenants. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I've got some ideas. How about you? If this is your vineyard. Now, for the most part, we're uh, a Western audience here at church, and so we're not used to like throwing out answers. You guys did a great job with Steve, by the way. Nice work answering the question, shouting out, clapping, things like that. We're not used to like interjecting things when someone else is talking. But in the East, it is not this way even to this day. And in Jesus' day, it was the same. So as Jesus is telling this story, he gets to this part, and I have to think that there is a pregnant pause. He says, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I think the audience then jumped in and says, I've got an idea. He killed all of them. He didn't send another servant. He sent an army with swords. They've got to take those tenants out You can't treat people this way. This is shameful behavior. If you are going to leave and be gone for a long while to another country, you want tenants that are going to take care of your things and your people. And these tenants are not doing that. So, as the vineyard owner is thinking, what shall I do? You and I in the original audience probably has some ideas of how we would take our revenge or how we would bring justice on the situation. But let's see what the vineyard owner does. He says, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Okay, it's one thing to treat servants a certain way, but if I send my beloved son, surely they will know that they've acted wrongly. Surely they will give him the crop. Surely they will not treat him in such a shameful way. I think we can connect with this to some point and we kind of get it, 
But in this culture, heritage and bloodline was so important. Treating a king or an owner's son shamefully, that's a direct insult to the owner of the vineyard. So he says, surely I will send my beloved son and perhaps they will respect him. I think at this point the audience is hearing Jesus saying, what? What are you doing? Why would the vineyard owner send his beloved son? Verse 14, but when the tenants saw him, the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance may be ours. Let's just pause right there. This is a terrible plan. Let's kill the son and then maybe he will look favorably upon us. Just a side note, terrible plan. We're going to go back to that. Verse 15, and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Again, another escalation in behavior. He wasn't just shamed, thrown out, sent away empty-handed. They threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the audience heard this, they said, surely not. The exact Greek phrase is an idiom that was used, never may it be. Never may it be. The shame of this story, the shame of the behavior of the tenants was galling to the listener of Jesus. Never may this be. But he, Jesus, looked directly at them and he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Here Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118, verses 21 through 24. I'll read it for you. Psalm 118, verses 21 through 24. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. One commentator says what Jesus is doing here is he's taking a psalm of promise and using it as a condemnation. He is saying that shameful act of the vineyard tenants, of killing the vineyard owner's son, he's saying that's exactly what you, the audience, is about to do. Some got what he was talking about. The scribes and the chief priests who would have known the Old Testament and the reference to Psalm 118 would not have floated past them the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. As we know, we don't have to follow this story too much longer to say that they found their hour. They laid hands on Jesus and put him to death. He said what happened 
to this vineyard owner's son is what you are about to do to me. And he was right. So what is Jesus trying to accomplish with this, with this parable? And what is he trying to say to us tonight? Let's look at some implications of this parable. We're going to uh, take a look at five if you're taking look, notes here tonight. First, Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promise. Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promise. I'll put it up here on the screen. Uh, this is just one of many examples. I just picked one of the most vivid. Um, there's so many examples, so many passages almost identical to this in the Old Testament, many of them in the prophets. This one happens to be in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26. This is speaking of the, the Jewish people, the people of God. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you and they cast your law behind their back and they killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Here, Nehemiah is recounting the history of the Jewish people. The history of God's chosen people that were given a great inheritance by him. He tells them that the prophets that spoke the truth and told the people to repent were punished and even killed when they brought God's message. And here in verse 27, it says, you gave them great saviors who saved them from their enemies. The very next verse in verse 28 says, but again, they turned their back on the living God. The reason is because the Jewish people had little s saviors. If you look, this, if you look at this up here, uh, the word saviors over here on the far left bottom row, lowercase s. God gave them saviors. God gave them judges. God gave them kings and priests and prophets. But they kept blowing it. Even though they were God's chosen people, even though they had received a great inheritance and promise from him, they kept blowing it. And it's because they didn't need a little S Savior. They needed a capital S Savior. They needed a Savior, not just geopolitically, not just a war hero, not just a prophet, not just a priest, not just a king. They needed a Savior for their souls. Because just like us, their biggest problem is what was going on in their hearts. Their hearts turned to idols. Their hearts turned to foreign gods. Their hearts turned to other forms of worship. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. The promise to send a savior. The promise to send one who would conquer men's hearts. The promise that one would come and be rejected by his own people, but God would use it as the cornerstone for his kingdom. And that's the second implication. We need to talk about the stone. The stone. 
In Psalm 118 that Jesus is quoting here, we learn that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus rejected by his own, but becomes the cornerstone of the kingdom. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 4 says he was despised and rejected. Despised and rejected by man. The Savior would be despised. The Savior would be rejected by his own, but he would be the cornerstone of the kingdom. And here's why. Because without Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, without Jesus coming and conquering our biggest problem, which is sin in our own flesh, our own hearts, our own body, Without Jesus coming and doing that for us, we aren't invited into the kingdom. So Jesus is rejected, but he becomes the very cornerstone of the kingdom of God. The people of God, the building of God that Jesus is making, Jesus becomes the cornerstone. It's all built on him. That's what we learn from this idea of the stone Isaiah 53 goes on to say, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Here we see Jesus say that he is the cornerstone, and in verse 18 of Luke 20, we read, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This has... Uh, some of the same language of Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel sees a great vision of the kingdom of God rising up and destroying and falling on as a stone crushing all other kingdoms. Jesus in that moment looked to be crushed when he hung on the cross, completely rejected. You cannot be any more rejected in Jesus' day than hanging on a cross. Yet, he was bearing our griefs, bearing our sorrows, bearing our sin upon himself in exchange for his righteous perfection, credited to us because of what he has done. At the end of the day, we will either have a humble, contrite, and repentant heart before God, or our hearts and our pride and our flesh will be crushed by him. Either we humble ourselves before him or we will be humiliated before him. His kingdom and his work on the cross crushes the hearts of mankind. Rejected, but becomes the cornerstone of the kingdom. Number three, our God is just and our God is kind. This vineyard owner sends his beloved son. You or I would have sent an army of men with swords looking to take revenge, and no one would have blamed us. The God of the universe so many times on these pages should have just said, enough. I'm starting over. I'm done with all of you fools you idolaters, you sinners. I've given you everything and you keep turning your back on me. Yet God sends his beloved son. 
at so many points in this parable, at so many points in God's word, and so many times in human history, God could have just said enough, and he would have been just and holy to say mankind is not worth saving. Yet he sends his beloved son. In the parables, just these parables that we've talked about this summer, He sends the beloved son. He gives us an inheritance and says that he's entrusting the kingdom to us. He invites the younger brother in, in the prodigal sons. He invites the older brother in. He keeps inviting people to his feast. He keeps entrusting the kingdom to people like you and me and asking us to steward it well. He just keeps pouring out grace and mercy. We see that throughout scripture and throughout each of these parables. Our God is just and kind. Our God is holy yet gracious and merciful at the same time. The older I get, the more amazed I am by the grace of God. And I wish I could tell you it's because I'm in seminary now. Or because I've read enough books that I finally get how gracious God is. But God's grace becomes more amazing every day because my sin and my flesh, I just see how wicked it is every day. I keep seeing areas of pride. I keep seeing areas of idolatry. I keep seeing areas where I just don't trust and believe God. His grace is so Amazing. Our God is just and kind. Another thing that we need to talk about is fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. What is the purpose of planting a vineyard? It's fruitfulness. It's producing a crop. That is the purpose of building a vineyard. That is the purpose for which God has given us anything so that we would be fruitful. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah spends most of the chapter talking about how Israel, the Jewish people, God's chosen people are a vineyard, but they are producing wild grapes. They are not producing what God intended to produce when he planted the vineyard, when he chose the people. In last week's parable in Matthew chapter 21, verse 43, we read Jesus tell the Jewish leaders, the kingdom of God has been taken from you and given to those outside of the Jewish people because they are bearing fruit. God intends for us to bear fruit. He saves us to glorify himself and to produce fruit in our lives. And when we produce fruit in our lives, it glorifies God, it benefits others, and it brings great joy and peace to us. It's a win-win-win. God has planted us right where we are. He's put the gospel in us, the spirit in us. He's put us in Iowa City right now for such a time as this, and he's asking us to bear fruit. Lastly, We have been given an inheritance. Let's go back to the plan of these vineyard tenants. Just by way of reminder, let's make sure we understand their plan. Verse 14, 
Go back and read it with me of Luke chapter 20. But when the tenants saw him, the vineyard owner's son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance may be ours. Bad plan. Really bad plan. They were not thinking clearly about how to get an inheritance. How do you get an inheritance? You're a beloved son. You are invited into the wealth. You are invited into the resources of the owner, the father, the king, the creator. These vineyard tenants went about getting an inheritance in all the wrong ways. Turn with me one chapter back to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. This is right after the triumphal entry. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is what Jesus is saying. Peace just rode into town and you're going to hang them on a cross. We go about trying to obtain the inheritance in all the wrong ways. We go about trying to have peace and joy and good feelings and success and purpose in all the wrong ways. And it's not working. It can bring distraction. It can bring temporary pleasure. But it is not an inheritance. We go about all these ways to try to get what we think we need. And some of these things we do need. But we're going about it in all the wrong ways. Because if we are in Christ and his spirit is in us, we will bear fruit because we have been given an inheritance. An inheritance of God's spirit. An inheritance of God's blessing and promise and power and grace of the gospel and good news to share with others. We have been given a great inheritance. And with it comes good news of great joy for all people, us included. We have been given a great inheritance to steward and to see bear fruit in our lives. We have been given the inheritance and the promise of Abraham. We have been given the inheritance and the promise given to God's people throughout time. Yet like they, we get distracted by so many other things and forget what God has freely given 
our God has brought us into and is bringing about a kingdom. He has invited us in and he gave his beloved son so that we can take part in his kingdom, treacherous as our acts may be. He has given us an inheritance. He has given us his blessing. He has given us his power. He has given us his spirit. He has given us a call on our lives that is bigger than anything else we could give our lives to. Let's live for the heavenly father because of what the beloved son has done for us by the power of the spirit. One day at a time. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your amazing grace. That you would look upon me a treacherous, idolatrous, sinful man. And you would give your beloved son for me. God, you would give me the good news of the gospel to share with others. God, that you would produce any fruit from my life is just amazing. Thank you, God, for your amazing grace. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. Thank you, Spirit, for living inside of us. Father, we want to live like we have inherited the kingdom. Instead of living for our own kingdom, instead of getting sidetracked by all these other things that distract us, God, help us to live like your beloved children in your kingdom. Help us to live for you because of what you have done for us. Help us to live with a love, a joy, a peace, a patience, a kindness, a gentleness, a self-control that is not of this world, that is nothing that we can produce, that no created thing could give us. God, creator, would you give us that? Help us to live in that and live for that. God, show us what fruitfulness looks like right here in Iowa City this year in our dorm, in our home, in the classroom, at work, at home, wherever we go. We want to be your people living for your good news and help us to remember that it's good news for us too. In Jesus' name, amen.